Thanks so much for listening to the weekly teaching podcast from Prodigal Church. We're so glad you're connecting with us online. If you've been listening for a while or you consider Prodigal as your home church, would you consider giving monthly to support this ministry? We're so grateful for the increasing impact our church is having on our online listeners. Thanks for being a part of us. You can discover all things Prodigal on the Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store or on our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I can't contend with you Your ways are so much higher When we pass through the fire That Christ endured before us When you were in the wilderness Before we dive in, I just want to say how incredible our PC Kids Fun Run was last weekend. Uh, Thank you to everyone who sponsored kids. We raised thousands of dollars for Live Again Fresno. And we also learned a lot uh, at the event. We learned that when you shoot paint and colored powder at children, you should be very frugal with the powder. We also learned that children are of different heights, and so when you shoot paint or spray powder towards uh, an older kid who's taller, that would be directly into the face of the younger children. Um, Also, at one point, all of the adults were coughing because of the colored powder that was in the air. In some ways, this event was a gigantic train wreck, but it was so fun and so successful. And a big thanks to our volunteers, and staff who made this happen, and to the kids who raised thousands of dollars for Live Again Fresno. You guys are unbelievable. Um, And the Prodigal Picnic was an absolute blast right afterwards. We ate some great tacos, and we had a pretty epic uh, water balloon war. And I'm not sure who won the war, but I definitely know that I lost. And uh, this is actually our last day at Fort Washington Elementary. If you're watching this online, you probably didn't attend or aren't planning on attending um, our outdoor service, but this is our last one. Next week, we're back at Bullard, and we're pretty excited for that. Today is also the finale of our Into the Wilderness sermon series, our Exodus Part 2, and we're not going to be able to dive in to every chapter and verse throughout the remaining chapters of Exodus, but we'll do a drive-by, kind of by the, the bulk of the text, and we'll focus in on one particular story found in chapters 32 through 34. Now, last week, we left off with the Ten Commandments, and they were carved onto two stone tablets, but they weren't the only instructions or the only laws that were given on Mount Sinai to Moses for the people of God. And throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, many more laws and instructions are given. In fact, these instructions, these laws, can become a bit weird and quite specific. Okay, here's one example. Exodus 21, verse 22. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely. Okay, is this not like the mother of all hypotheticals, okay? If two random dudes are fighting, and one accidentally hits a pregnant woman, and then she gives birth early, okay, what? Okay, let's continue. But there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. This sounds barbaric, does it not? But eye for eye, tooth for tooth was a massive step forward in the ancient world because this was a violent kill or be killed world. Uh, this violent world was a place where capital punishment really was the only kind of punishment. If you cut off my hand, you die. If you steal my horse, you die. If you eat that dessert that I was saving in the fridge for later, you die, okay? This was the world in which the law arises. So this eye for eye, tooth for tooth stuff is actually a massive step forward in the cause of justice. It might sound barbaric, but let's just look inside ourselves right now, right? If someone punches you in the gut, what do you want to do in return? Yeah, punch him in the face, right? Our natural bend is not to get even, but to get ahead. You punch me in the gut, I punch you in the face. This eye for eye becomes the building blocks of our own criminal justice system 3,500 years later. In Latin, it's called uh, lex talionis, the law of retali retaliation. And this is where we get the idea that the punishment must fit the crime. And so we hear we have the building blocks of a more just system. This was to be seen as a step forward in the cause of justice. Now, I wish I could tell you that every law found in the book of Exodus had a wonderful principle that was applicable and perfect for us nowadays. But that's probably not true. But they were fitting for the people of God 3,500 years ago as God is beginning to shape them to become his people, his treasured possession, a light to all the nations. Now, the next portion of the book of Exodus deals with the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. This was to be a portable temple where the presence of God would be among his people. It was an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality. And the tabernacle is basically a series of curtains and frames, and Moses leaves no detail undescribed in these chapters, right? From the kind of wood and fabric used, to the furniture and decor within the tabernacle, to the dress code of the priests and what they should wear when entering the tabernacle, God describes in vivid detail how his people are to construct his portable temple. In the priesthood, the laws, the tent of meeting, these are symbols of a higher and ultimately mysterious reality. They, were, they truly were the means in which God and his people connected. Now, eventually, this portable tabernacle, this portable temple, um, gives way to uh, and is replaced by uh, a permanent structure, the temple itself. And eventually, the temple, the priesthood, the law itself, became a system of oppression instead of a place of connection. The law, the regulations, the priesthood, the temple, all of these, instead of being used as a place of connection with the divine to become the people God's called us to be, they themselves became the center and they lost their point and they lost their focus. The symbols became the essence and they became religious instead of godly. The tabernacle, despite being built as a perfect rectangle, was never intended to box God in. Like the pagan gods around them, to be safely stored away and called upon to serve the people's purposes whenever they needed. No, that was never the heart. 
So how does this focus on the law and the tabernacle affect us today? Well, we too, like Israel, have the temptation to make our religion, our churches, our faith system, a place of oppression rather than a place of connection. And in so doing, we miss the point. We go to church not, not to notch uh, something on our spiritual belts, right? We, 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 we get into this rhythm because as we, as we meet together to become the people of God, it becomes a part of us. It seeps into our routines. Not so that it can just become routine, but so that it can shape us into the people God has called us to be. This is why we go to church regularly. Now, all this talk about the law and the tabernacle, I know that I might lose some of you. And for others of you, you're like, give me more. I want to know more about the connectedness between the temple, the, the tabernacle, what it represents, what it symbolizes, both Old and New Testaments, the priesthood, and what that also is. You want to know all the deep ins and outs of this portion of the scriptures. Uh, let me give you a homework assignment then for those of you who are like that. Uh, just Google search law, tabernacle, temple, and Jesus. And you're going to find some unbelievable connections between all of those and how Jesus ultimately uh, fulfills all of them. But lumped in between the instruction and construction of the tabernacle is this story about the golden calf. And you may be familiar with it. If not, it's found in Exodus chapters 32 through 34. Read it for yourself. But I'm going to tell you the story now, okay? So Moses is up on the mountain writing down all of these instructions from God, okay? And it's been a while. There wasn't a stenographer just kind of typing down everything that God is dictating to Moses, okay? There was no ink and paper readily available for Moses to write down everything God was saying. There was no talk texting, okay? You guys know talk texting, right? How many of you guys are talked texters, okay? I'm not, I'm not, right? But you speak what you want to your phone, period, okay? My brother is a talk texter and I make fun of him. I think that you look ridiculous when you talk text, exclamation point. What I'm trying to say is that Moses and God seem to be taking a very long time up on the hill. And so the people are getting a bit frustrated. They're tired of waiting. And when you are frustrated and when you are tired, you usually don't make the best of decisions. And the same is true for the people of God here at the base of Mount Sinai. So the people go to Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother, and they say this, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That's what they say. Hey, Aaron, make us gods. Let us break the second commandment. And as for this fellow Moses, yeah, we don't even know what's happened to him. After all that has happened in leaving Egypt, and now the disrespect, the dishonor, the blasphemy, it's shocking. And so what does Aaron, the high priest, what does Aaron, Moses' brother, say? Take off all your jewelry and bring them to me. And they did, and then Aaron used all that gold jewelry to form a golden calf idol. And here he proclaims, these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron builds an altar for sacrifices and there's this huge party and sacrifices the next day. Meanwhile, back on top of the mountain, God and Moses are chatting about all these rules for Israel to become the people God has called them to be, to shine their light to the nations. And now God knows what's up. God knows what's happening down at the bottom of the mountain and he's ticked. 
So he says to Moses, leave me alone, Moses, so my anger may burn against them. They're a stiff-necked and stubborn people, and I am going to destroy them. And Moses is like, no, Lord, what will the nations say about you? That you brought the people out of Egypt, you freed them with your mighty hand, only to kill them months later in the desert? Remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't break your promise now. Relent. Turn from your fierce anger. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, the story isn't over, far from it, but I just have to pause and wrestle with what just happened. God's like, I'm done with you. I'm ticked. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses is like, no, 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 God, don't. Don't. It'll make you look bad, and you'd also be breaking promise that you made to Abraham. So just, like, relax. And God's like, okay. Moses is finally being who God had called him to be, an advocate for the people. But there is something big going on here. Does Moses change God's mind? Can that happen? Is that even possible? Now, contrary to what we might think, there is a precedent for God changing his mind throughout the scriptures. Abraham pleads for God to relent uh, to, to not destroy Sodom. God agrees. Moses pleads for God not to destroy Israel. God relents. The prophets plead for God not to destroy his people, and either God changes or the people change. There is a turning. There is a repenting. There is a change of mind. My question that has, that has permeated my heart and mind this week as I've focused in on this encounter is that why in the Bible, whenever someone tries to change God's mind about something, it's always away from anger and judgment towards mercy and compassion. And then why does God always relent when asked to do so? Now, we do see someone and somewhere in the scriptures where uh, a prophet is, is asking God not to relent, not to uh, have mercy or compassion, but rather to judge harshly, to condemn, to display his wrath on a certain people group. We have where this prophet is trying to get God to do that. Go get him, God. And this, of course, is the prophet Jonah. And Jonah is ticked that God is not going to punish the Ninevites. He's like, God, these people are terrible. I knew that you would show them mercy. They didn't deserve mercy at all. And he tries to tell God, go get them. And God doesn't. God doesn't change his mind from relenting from the disaster that was planned. The ramifications here are astounding. Does prayer change God's mind? Perhaps but only if it's moving towards mercy. Only if the asker isn't asking for judgment on his enemies, but mercy on the people. Whenever we are moving towards compassion, towards grace, towards love, it seems like God is always willing to change his mind. Now, I find no theological difficulty in God changing his mind. I find it beautiful that God bends towards mercy and that his servant Moses, who didn't want the job in the first place, is putting himself on the line for this stiff-necked, and stubborn people. Later on in the story, he says, God, don't punish them, punish me. Put all the, what they deserve on me. Give me what they deserve. 
This is simply not the same Moses that we find in chapter three that says, God, send somebody else. So what happens next in the story? Moses heads down the mountain with the two tablets in his hands. And when he gets to the camp and he sees firsthand all that has happened while he is interceding on their behalf and defending them to the divine, Moses loses it. He throws the tablets on the ground and shatters them to pieces. And what he did was both literal and symbolic of what Israel had just done. They too, in a much more egregious way, have shattered the commandments of God. Moments earlier, Moses had successfully appeased God's wrath. And now upon seeing the actual depth that his people have sunk, Moses does not follow his own advice. He loses it. You know what Moses does next? Oh, you, you can tell he's mad. He burns the golden calf, orders it to be grounded into powder, and then he makes all the Israelites drink it. Verse 21. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold or jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Wait, that's not how it happened, Aaron. Aaron is deflecting, right? First, he blames the people. He says, you know how evil these people can get. And then he doesn't just blame the people. He blames the fire. I just threw the gold in there and then out walked this golden calf, right? He's not taking any responsibility. It is hard to take responsibility. It is hard to own up to the part that you may have played. But as you'll see throughout this narrative and throughout the rest of scriptures and most succinctly in the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, God is with you even when you have a role in nailing him to the cross. Even when you bear responsibility for some great offense God is still with you. Even when you promise, God, I will never do that again, and then you do it again, God is still with you. God is somehow still for you. Even when you deflect responsibility, he is with you, and he is moving you towards love and compassion. Like Moses moved God, God now moves you, moves me, moves us. Then, 3,000 Israelites are executed and a plague breaks out in camp, okay? More on that another time. But in chapter 33, God calls the people to go, to leave the base of Mount Sinai and to go take the promised land that he had promised to Abraham, their forefathers. And Moses says, I won't go if you don't go with us. I'm not going anywhere without you. Show me your glory. I know your name, but show me your glory. Reveal it to me more intimately than you ever have before. And the next portion of scripture has been so widely debated and wrestled with for 3,500 years by rabbis, scholars, and theologians alike. And we'll read it together starting in verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Some say that you can't see, God says that you can't see my face, but you can see my backside, my, my butt. You can't handle anything else. All we can say firmly is this. We don't know for sure, but we can say that God revealed his glory to Moses in a way that scarcely we can even fathom or imagine. In January of 2000, I spent six months in Malawi, Africa. I was 19 years old. And there were moments in Malawi that were some of the most powerful and beautiful moments of my life. The things that God did in me, I have never stopped carrying these past 21 years. I fell in love with God's word. It was there that I first loved reading and studying the Bible, and I still love reading and studying the Bible. I wrote a journal every day during those six months. And I often will pick that journal up and reread what I wrote, what God was doing in me, through me, in those days in Malawi. And I remember going through this one dark time in February of 2000, you know, a month and a half into this journey, and uh, I was asking, I was sitting on this rock, overlooking this beautiful river, and I remember asking God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory in the way that you showed Moses your glory. I remember sitting on this rock and I had just read that passage in Exodus and I was like, God, I, I wanna see you. I wanna know you more. I want us to be tight. I want us to be close. Reveal, show me your glory. I need to know that you're with me, that you're for me, that you love me, that I'm doing what you want me to do, that I'm becoming who you want me to become. God, I need you, show me. And I, as I'm listening to the waterfall in the distance and the birds of the air and children playing off in the village, uh, I felt God say, look up. And as I looked up, the sun moved away from this cloud and like bright sun just in heat fell on my face. And I looked up and in the shape, uh, in the clouds was a thumbs up. It, it was these clouds that were shaped directly like a thumbs up. And I felt like it was God saying, I got you, John. And it was such a powerful moment for me. And I know it may sound silly and it may sound ridiculous, but I looked up at God with tears in my eyes and I gave him a thumbs up right back, like right back at you, Father. And it was this moment that just affected me greatly. And could it have all been in my head in just a fluke? Maybe. But in that moment, I felt that God was revealing his glory, that he was revealing himself in an intimate way, speaking to the deepest parts of who I am. The God who gave me a thumbs up in the sky in February of 2000 is still with me now. And he is with you in the midst of your failures, after your failures. He wasn't done with Moses. He wasn't done with the people of Israel. He wasn't done with me, and he isn't done with you. Now, Moses never enters the land with his people. But Joshua and the people enter and take the land. Moses dies in the wilderness, just at the edge of the promised land. 
And the 12 tribes of Israel pass by Moses and he blesses them before they enter the land. And uh, this moment was portrayed in a theater performance many, many years ago. And the role of Moses was played by an old grizzled Southern man with a, with a Cajun accent who lived a hard, difficult, poor life, but a life of great love, a life where he had seen the faithfulness of God. And Moses, at the very end, is on the stage, sitting on a rock, reflecting as the 12 tribes pass by, and he's reflecting as he's giving them the final blessing. And as they pass him by and march off toward the land of Canaan, the mighty emancipator's shoulders sag as they get to enter the promised land, and he does not. With every sound of the retreating footsteps of his fellow Hebrews, the light on the stage grows dimmer and dimmer until the stage is almost total darkness. And suddenly, you are aware that Moses is not alone. There is somebody else with him on the stage. The presence walks over to where Moses is sitting. Gently, he lays his hand on Moses' shoulder. And without looking up, Moses, who has experienced this presence so vividly, time and time again, knows who it is. And slowly, almost imperceptibly, his shoulders begin to straighten and he raises his head. And he says in a Southern, almost Cajun accent, use with me, Lord. Use with me, Lord. Use, you're with me, Lord. And back comes the answer. Cause you is my child. Cause you is my child, that God speaks in the same way that Moses does. Because you're with me, Lord? Yeah, because you're my child. That's all Moses needed to know. And that is all that we need to know, isn't it? You are God's child, and he is with you, even in the wilderness. God, may we sense and experience your glory, your power, and your presence evermore in these days. God, help us in the wilderness and help us in the days of glory, perhaps in the promised land. We need you. We love you. Form us to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week, uh, we will be back at Bullard High School indoors and in person in the Performing Arts Theater, and we can't wait. We would love to see you in person if that's something that you're comfortable with. And uh, we're at 10 a.m. there, and we look forward to the air conditioning um, and the great church coffee that we're going to provide. We hope to see you soon. Have a great week. Peace in the Middle East. I'm so